Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Dope Black Woman Podcast, the podcast where we share stories of black excellence as part of our safe digital sisterhood. I'm Leanne Levos. I'm Rashan. You can call me Shan. I'm Livs. On this week's episode, we're speaking with Minister Juliet Cuthbert Flynn about the social costs of unequal access to abortion. Hello, 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 everyone. So I'm very excited about this podcast. For those of you who don't know, we are doing a special series this month for International Women's Month around women that we'd like to refer to as living legends. So women who have contributed great things to the community or to their communities and are still alive to tell the story so that we can celebrate them accordingly. I think, you know, too often we celebrate women and people in general once they're gone. So this International Women's Month, we really wanted to take a chance to take the opportunity rather to celebrate women who are still with us and are still doing great things in the community. So each of us, myself, Rashan, and Olives will be taking an episode for ourselves and we'll be featuring great women from across the globe throughout the course of this month. So this week, I would like to introduce Minister Juliet Cuthbert Flynn, who is currently a minister in Jamaica, and I'll let her introduce herself a little bit. Uh, welcome, Minister Cuthbert Flynn. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, it's really a pleasure and the dope. I never considered myself as dope. So this is really dope to be on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, believe me, in the UK, athletics, as I'm sure you know, is a huge, huge thing. And I'm really excited for people to hear more about what you're doing now, in addition to kind of your trajectory to into parliament and into politics in general. So we'll get right into it. Um, one of the first things that we ask our guests is what makes you a dope black woman? <laughs> uh, I'll probably have to think about that. But, um, and I, again, as I said, I never considered myself as dope, but I think possibly because of um, my success in athletics in track and field, I think, you know, when I look back now, especially when I look now, when I see, my um, fellow athletes running on the track and the times that they're running, um, I think they're pretty dope. <laughs> and, um, you know, I have to put myself in the bracket and go, wait a minute, you did just the same thing. You did that. You ran those same times. 10-8 um, is a pretty fast time. And to see, to know that I did that over 20, like 25 years ago and that athletes are competing and running those times, I think that's pretty dope. So I think... I would say because of um, what I've achieved in in athletics, yeah, and maybe because I'm I'm 
people see me as very outspoken and I, I speak my truth and I'm not really afraid to hold back. I think we have one life to live and I think we should express how we feel as long as we do it in a, in a decent way. Yeah, I think that's something that's really going to resonate with our listeners because we at Dope Black Women pride ourselves on providing spaces with women, for women who want to be themselves unapologetically and want to express themselves and want to be um, you know, fully articulate about all of their identities, not just one particular aspect. So thank you for that. Um, one of the first things I'd like to talk about is just where were you born? Um, what was it like growing up as a young black girl in Jamaica? Um, yeah, well, Juliet Cuthbert um, grew up in Port Morant in St. Thomas. Um, I am the first from my mom, of course. There are three of us. I have a brother and a sister. And uh, I have lots of cousins and uncles and um, one aunt, but mainly um, uncles. And um, I was a tomboy. <laughs> so I didn't really hang out with the girls. Um, my sister and my aunt, they hung out together and I hung out with the boys. Wow. And wherever the boys, wherever the boys were, you could find me. So if they're playing cricket, if they're playing whatever it is, they're going to the river. I was a real good country girl. So climbing trees and doing all of those fun stuff, that was me. And was that where your interest in sports was born? Was athletics always kind of where you guided towards immediately or were you interested in other sports at first? No, really, you know, as you know, Jamaica is a big track and field country. And I think um, even now, maybe not so much now, but you see kids racing in the country, you'll probably see that in rural parts of Jamaica, um, persons racing each other. Uh, and that's where it started. People say, let's race. And they would, would draw a line with a chalk and you go down on your marks and you run. And that's how I really developed and realized that I even had a talent um, by just doing that, running with the boys and of course, beating them. <laughs> of course, the word got around in the community that I was pretty fast because I was beating boys. And then the older people wanted to race me. I also beat them. <laughs> and um, that is really where, how it began. And I went to Port Morant All Age School. Um, sports day came around. I didn't really want to compete because, you know, you were just running, running on the road. And um, I entered, I entered um, whichever race it was. If it was, it was not, of course, you know, the track's not that long. So it's not 100 meters, right. but 100 meters for a primary school. And of course I beat everybody on that day. And then we would have to know, right. We would then have to go to the big meet, which was the sports day at a place called Cotton Tree in Port Marad. Okay. And that is where everybody found out who Juliet was because that day I got so many medals. I won all of my races. And I think from there now, everybody knew that this is somebody to watch out for. So in terms of sports specifically did you have any other kind of woman that you looked up to or did you have someone that was a mentor that was guiding you through or did you find that it was mostly men that were kind of kind of trying to hone your skills as it were I, and you know I didn't really have any mentor at that time but when I went transferred I went to Moranby all-age school that is where it took off because that's when a, a coach Howard Jackson he found Juliet Cuthbert. You know, he saw me running. Um, I saw this man kept watching me and following me. I'm like, who is this person? 
-hmm. and he was a coach at Morant Bay High. And that is how I was actually recruited. And so I went from, yeah, I went from there and, um, you know, went to Morant Bay High School. And from there, he was really my mentor, my biggest fan, um, taught me everything I needed to know about track and field and really, because I didn't have a father figure. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, this was a person that taught me everything and, 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 and showed me where my dad was really talented. Cause you know, you're just running. Yeah. And um, he basically told me that I was good, that I was good enough to actually go to the Olympics on the Olympic trials came in um, 1980. I was 16. Wow. He was, he said to me, you have to go to the Olympic trials. And I was just like, no, I don't want to go to any, any Olympics. Of course, I didn't know what the Olympics was about. And um, we didn't have TV like no, and yeah. you know, with everything broadcasting. So you really no, I had no clue. Yeah. And I, no, I went to the trials and I saw, you know, stars. Merlin Otti was there, Jackie Pusey, all these people, and um, were a little bit ahead of me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I made a team, but I made the team as an alternate, not as you know, I didn't get get fourth. I got, actually got fifth. Right. Um, or did I get six? No, I got fifth or sixth in the race. I can't remember. And I, so I fit the bill to become an alternate for the relay team in case somebody got injured. Because, you know, for a relay, they take six people. Right. And that is really how I got on the team. And, you know, the fact that it was going to be in Russia. I was like, I'm not going to Russia. You know, the Soviet <laughs> Union at that time um, was like, no, I'm not going to do any Olympic Games. And... You know, I have to say, I'm so thankful for him. He passed away in 1992. And I'm, I'm really thankful for him to have showed me um, the way. Because when I got to the Olympics, uh, it opened a whole new world for me. An entire, I did not know that there was something bigger than champs. Yeah. You know, yeah. I didn't know something was bigger than, than, than Eastern champs. I thought going to the Carifta Games was it. When I went to the Olympics and saw all the different countries and all the different participants and the, the whole, you know, to do with the Olympic Games and what it represents, I was amazed. And that's when I said, for sure, I have to get, this time I'm an alternate, I must get to the next Olympic Games. I want to be a part of this. And that's really how it started. Yeah. And I mean, you went on to win medals, you're a silver medalist, gold medalist, you are Sportswoman of the Year, so obviously your career just grew from strength to strength. Do you have a particular kind of uh, peak that you always identify to say, okay, this is like my shining moment in sports. This is what meant the most to me. Oh, definitely. 1992 Barcelona was definitely the moment, still the moment for me, because just as I said, when you look back, when you're running, you know, you're doing it for... Um, you're working and you're doing it for the love. You're not really thinking about it and how fast you are. It's just, just something that you're naturally gifted with. Um, but now looking back and looking at the time and seeing the athletes run those times, I can pat myself on the back and say, wow, you were amazing. Um, when you, you know, you're able to put things in perspective. And so just to be able to get on that podium, looking now at the different rounds, first round, second round, semifinal, final, yeah. And to get there and then to not just get to the final, but to get on a podium that only three people can get on. And I was two, number two in that line. 
um, it's an amazing feat. And I think about it every now and then and just have to smile. You know, it's really interesting, I think, because I think as Black women, particularly when we're in spaces that are male-dominated or white-dominated, we don't necessarily value our worth and we don't necessarily celebrate ourselves. So it's really nice to hear you say that. And I don't know if you, I mean, I know for me, when I moved into moved to the UK, although not in sports because I'm completely inept as it relates to anything I've <laughs> But as an academic, I found myself consistently questioning whether or not I was good enough and whether or not mm -hmm. I was capable. So it's really nice to hear you say that. And I don't know if you had those moments where you questioned yourself to say, oh, can I beat this girl? She, you know, she's from Russia and she has all of these um, additional amenities at her, you know, to her advantage. And do you ever have moments of that where you were? I think the moments that most of us Black athletes had on the track was were we attractive enough to attract the sponsors? Um, were we attractive enough to get on that magazine? Were we attractive enough to make the money? It was the lighter skin girls that we saw, um, you know, like the Flojo and the long flowing hair and um, all of that. And so it, 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 we knew, and I, I think I understood that if you're not of a certain color, hue. Mm -hmm then maybe you wouldn't get certain endorsement. You would have to be exceptional. And I didn't think that I was exceptional. I think I was good enough and with, you know, on the line with everybody else. And so, but I knew it was harder for me and I saw that it was harder for me. Us black athletes would see, literally see athletes from various countries who were not as talented as we were, but they had huge contracts at the time. I mean, no contracts are given out like nothing, but at that time to get a contract was very difficult. Yeah, it was something very difficult. And so we knew that, I knew that, but um, I didn't let it bother me. I just went out there and did what I needed to do. And in terms of, I mean, it seems as though your entire career, whether it's sports or politics, has kind of been centered on Jamaica. Was that intentional? Because, you know, there are many Jamaican athletes who go off and, um, you know, run for different countries or run for the UK or for Merle Nottie herself went and ran for another country several years after, you know, later on in her career. Was that something that you ever considered or was it an intentional choice to kind of stick to your Jamaican roots in that way? It was definitely intentional. I never had any dream of competing for any other country. And I also knew that once I retired, I was going to return to Jamaica. Mm. So even at a very young age, I knew exactly what I wanted to do and um, always um, work towards those goals. I'm goal oriented. And I think even at 16, when I migrated, I said, I'm returning to Jamaica. I'm coming back home. And then the further as I got along, got on in track and field, I said to myself, fine, I love America, I love the country, but Jamaica, every time I came back, I felt something. Um, there was, you know, I would cry on the plane, leaving Jamaica to go back to Atlanta. And um, I would just get homesick. And, and so I knew I needed, I knew I needed to come back and um, I didn't hesitate. I got a chance to get back here and I jumped at that chance <laughs> and um, never looked back. I knew that this is home. This is where I belong. Um, this is where I want to live and die. I love my country. I love my country. It's so crazy, right? Because I think for me as well, I left when I was 18 with the intention of coming back as well. You know, every 
degree that I did, my main project was centered on Jamaica. And I always, you know, I say it similar to you. Every time I left, I, I felt like I was leaving a piece of me. And everywhere I've been, I've tried to insert Jamaica to, you know, in what I'm doing, including dope, dope black women as well, actually, hence me trying me having you on the podcast <laughs> today. Um, and Jamaica's a really interesting place. You know, I, I find that many Jamaicans have this unbridled sense of patriotism and unbridled sense of joy about being in Jamaica, despite the fact that it is such a complicated and troubled place at times, right? And so did this kind of uh, transition you into politics quite naturally? What was the incentive to get involved in politics after having such a great career? Because I feel like you could have gone into anything. You could have done more promotional sponsors, packages, that kind of thing. But you chose to go into a very difficult, um, especially as a woman. Unforgiving. 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 Yes. <laughs> very unforgiving space. So what yeah. was that like? How did you get involved in politics? Was uh, you know, tell us that story. Exactly, exactly what you said. Um, I knew I was going to come back and I wanted to open a gym because when I was in Atlanta, I wanted, that was where I had my my eyes set to um, really open a, a facility. I wanted to stay in the fitness fitness industry. And so coming back, I came back actually doing marketing for Puma. Um, oh. <laughs> I came back in sport. Yeah, I came back doing um, marketing for Puma Jamaica and Puma Caribbean. And um, I actually was very influential in signing and getting Usain Bolt signed with Puma um, because I, at the time when he was in high school, we sponsored him with clothing because you couldn't give money, but we sponsored him with clothing and I chose him as the athlete. Um, the company at the time, we did a lot of football players and I said, and cricketers, Marlon Samuels is one of them. And I said, hey, wow. we, need a, we, need a, we need a track and field person. And he was the person at the time and so we signed him on locally with um, Mr. Chang, Western Sports, yeah. um, with Puma, and um, developed from there. We knew he was going to go pro and decided, hey, we can't let this chance slip. And um, at the time, call up Puma and say, you have to come to Jamaica now because this guy is going to go pro and everybody wants him. And from there, you know, you saw the, I saw the plight um, just... The, 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 the work ethics of a Jamaican. I, I also was a physical trainer for the Arnett Gardens Football Club while I was doing the marketing um, at Western Sports. And I saw um, youngsters eating little and nothing um, and then coming to, to the field, to, foot, to the football field to train. And they put out so much. And I would think, boy, if they only had more to eat or more better facility, better equipment to open the gym, of course. And from there, I would do packages. Um, always gave back to St. Thomas and Port Morant, did little kitty treats. And I saw what the Jamaican people, what we were made of. And I knew that so much more could be done. And that is when I started talking a lot about politics in my gym and, you know, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to see happen for my country and um, really stirred me up. I think about back in about 2007, um, when the Jamaica Labour Party won with Bruce Golden, the Honorable Bruce Golden, was when I really started to really look at politics as maybe something, because I would say, you know, I would want to see this happen or that happen, or why isn't this happening or that happening? 
you know, Jamaica is such, as you said, such a beautiful place. Um, yes, we have some, you know, very horrible things that happen here, but I would still, if I died tomorrow and I can come back um, and live anywhere, I would choose Jamaica again. And yeah. so even when you look at social media with all the different things that people are saying, I would never leave here, no matter what. Um, this is where, this is home. This is home for me. And that's how I really got into the politics, you know. Um, uh, Minister Chang recruited me, <laughs> Horace Chang <laughs> recruited me. And um, I decided, okay, I'm going to throw my, not knowing, of course, what I was getting into, um, because it doesn't tell you. You see, you see persons in parliament, you see things happening, um, but you just never know until you get in it and get, get on the ground. But um, I, I, I have no regrets. Um, it's, it's been very challenging, yes, but I have no regrets. I'm doing it for the love of it and I'm doing it for the people, doing it for my country. So your interest in politics really started at a grassroots level. I mean, you were able to see through sports kind of the hands-on or the, the real life, sorry, impact of poverty, the real life impact of not having access to things that probably most, most children should have access to. Um, so that's really interesting. And I didn't know that you essentially are responsible for the birth of the star that is Usain Bolt, not to take away from his talent, but as we've discussed, you know, I think it's really nice to know that actually a black woman had a hand in creating Usain as the world knows him today, not just, um, not just Jamaica, because Puma was one of his first, if not his first contract, right? So Yes, um, but I, I wouldn't want to take such a credit, but um, because I think any company that he represented, he would have done well. But I think um, the Puma brand, I've always, that was one of my first pair of spikes, by the way. So I'm, you can see, you can see how, how the kind of person that I am. Um, Puma was my first pair of spikes um, as a youngster. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and I ran in Puma, um, never did really get a contract um, from Puma but I love the brand itself and it's fitting for me to come back and work for um, such a company to give me such an awesome opportunity to come back to Jamaica and work and hence I'm here. And so, yes, you know, it was, I guess, looking at it, it was um, a good thing that I was placed at Puma at the time to say, hey, come get this talent because look at what he's doing now, the awesome things that he's doing for the company. It's amazing. It's amazing. And then you entered politics. <laughs> yes. The world of politics. Good awakening. And I mean, now I think we see that there are so many women that are jumping at the opportunity to become involved in politics. Um, my, for me personally, it's interesting because my uh, PhD is in politics and international studies, but I was adamant about not getting involved directly in politics in that way. Largely because I knew how difficult and, as you said, how unforgiving it would be. Um, so talk a little bit about what it's been like for you as a woman in such a male-dominated space, because the, the kind of influx of women in politics has only really happened within the past, I would say, five to seven years, right? I mean, you have staple women that have always been a part of politics, but um, I think we've seen the most... Uh, the greatest influx of younger women coming into politics. And at the time you would have been quite young yourself. So um, what's it been like uh, entering into politics in a male dominated space? Well, young is relative. <laughs> I mean, um, I'm young, I'm 30. I'm, 
and I still consider yeah I'm in my 50s young. so not that young but yes um it was daunting of course once I got in and saw what you know really realize what um what it would take to really represent um a constituency of you're talking about 39,000 people and they're coming at you persons are coming at you telling you that they want better roads, they want better infrastructure, they want better educational systems. Um, what are you doing? And you have to, you know, your phone's ringing off the hook and you have to answer to questions that they're asking because you are their representative, they put you there. Um, and so, you know, it was hard at first, I have to say, because at the time I was pregnant wow. and I just given birth, I campaigned while I was pregnant, um, gave birth, I just won in February and gave birth in July. My so goodness. you can imagine, I didn't get a chance to get back out there until uh, what December. And I'll never forget, um, I knew then that, whoa, I asked myself at that time, what did I just get into? <laughs> I remember a telephone, I remember somebody sent me a message. It was a female and I couldn't believe it. And she said to me, okay, now you have your baby, you need to get back into the constituency. It's been three months now, you need to get back into the constituency. Uh, I was like, wow, what could you, you need it so badly that you need to see me back in the constituency and not have the, you have my number to call me. And I thought, wow, this is what I heard from other representative, um, that you are as good as the last time that anybody saw you, as whatever right. it is that you did, they will just forget anything that you did before. It's really about no. And it's, I have to say, it's not all the constituents are like that, but I, then I realized that a lot of it is like that. Um, yeah. Another thing I recognized, I didn't know the pay was so little because I didn't even <laughs> think about the pay. And I think a lot of the parliamentarians now, they're, that's reaching them because I don't think any of them thought about the pay, the salary. I think they were just, they were doing it. We all got in it to help our country. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you look at social media and see how people curse us, those, you know, thiefing politician or these whatever politician, and they put us all in one category. Yeah. You know, I, it, it's sad, but I would never change. I, I like what I'm doing and I see the impact. We make a lot of impact. Trust me, we make a lot of impact um, that a lot of times, as you said, somebody may need to get something done and they do not know how to get that thing done because they're just not educated enough. They just don't know. They call upon you, the MP, to help them to find that solution. So we are counselors. We're all kinds of things to many, many people. We're not just what people think we are out there. And, you know, I would love a show one day to really talk to politicians to find out what exactly it is that we do. Yeah. Um, because we are so much more than what people think we are. Um, and so when I do, you might do 50,000 things, but you get even one thank you. That one thank you means a lot to, to us because it's, as I said, it's very unforgiving. Yeah. And um, so it's not, and, and I remember Mavis Gilmore told me, don't ever, she ran in the constituency and won. She mm -hmm. said, don't ever look for a thank you. Wow. Don't ever, whatever you do, don't look for a thank you. And I, I'll never forget that because you, it's, 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 you don't really get a lot of that. And so you know you're really serving for the good of your people, for the good of your country. 
And I think um, the sooner we understand or parliamentarians understand and some of these laws that we have on the books, that is why we're there. We weren't elected just to fix a road or just to give you water, give you those amenities. We are to lobby for you. We are really there as lawmakers. That's the first thing when you look at the, con the, 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 the um, constitution, that is why we're there to change laws, to, to get rid of some of the archaic laws that's there with a fine of $2. That was from yep. nine, from eight, from the 1800s. And so I think that is where I want to see our parliamentarians look, start to look to say, look, wait a minute. And we now have a lot of lawyers, mm -hmm. lot of learned people um, on, on the Jamaica Labour Party side, on the government side. And I want them to now look and see what are some of these laws? What is, what's, what is it that, why did I come into this? Yeah. Why did I come into it to make a difference in people's lives? Now, let me look at a particular law, whether it's for the elderly, whether it's for the children, whether it's for the disabled. Let's look at that bill right now, that act, and let's see if we can make some changes to that so we can get our society on the right path. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because uh, if, for those of you who don't know, when I moved back to Jamaica, I became the director of advocacy at a research think tank called Caribbean Policy Research Institute. And one of the first reports that I was handed uh, to deliver or to launch was this idea of the social costs of unequal access to abortion. And for those of you who don't know, abortion is still illegal in Jamaica on the books. So it is carry, it carries a punishment of life imprisonment with or without hard labor. And I think we're one of, I think it's like 97% of countries actually in the world have some, um, have legal abortions to some varying degree, whether you know it's for a particular set of individuals or a particular set of women or just all out uh, legalization altogether. But Jamaica, we're still in a space where it is illegal to have an abortion. And in spite of that, young, mostly young and poor women are still having abortions at great cost, whether to their health, to their lives, to the lives of children that are born in spite of the fact that they attempt to have abortions. So this has been one of your kind of passion projects, uh, Mrs. Flynn, throughout your career. Talk a little bit about your interest in, uh, you know, legalization of termination of pregnancies and how did you become interested in, in this area, in this topic? Well, thank, thanks so much for, for, for that. Um, Again, as a lawmaker, you must try to make a difference mm -hmm. and you must recognize what's happening in your constituency or in Jamaica, the wider Jamaica, and say, what can I do as a parliamentarian? Because I'm there to effect change. Um, I can make that happen because um, you are a lawmaker. And um, one of my constituents, which was also one of my workers, she died. Wow. Um, a constituent of mine, um, it was a botched abortion and she never made it to the hospital. Um, she actually died in her house while the, the taxi was on its way to pick her up, to take her to the hospital. She never made it. Wow. And when I heard about it, I was like, wow, I guess that is when, because I never gave too much thought about, you know, um, the, 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 the act itself. I never really looked at it. And then I, that is what stirred me up. And then I started 
looking at it and then uh, then countries Ireland at the time and some other countries were looking at their abortion policy and I decided no um too many women when I started doing research and then finding out about what the ministry has been trying to do for so long and not able to trying to pass a law for so long and not able to I decided as a backbencher um, I don't get a chance to speak up in parliament. This is why I'm a backbencher. I'm a freshman here. I need to make, um, make my voice heard. Yeah. And um, that is when I decided I call up a friend of mine. Actually, I can say it now. I call up uh, a friend of mine, Javon. And I said, hey, because there was a debate um, in the open about um, abortion in Jamaica. And um, went ahead and did the motion. Went, I spoke with the prime minister again. Um, as you know, I'm supposed to be in a conservative party, but I think we're evolving um, as the world is evolving. I entered the party because of certain things that the party stand for. I know that we are better managers. I think we manage the country better just looking at the history. Um, there are other reasons, um, you know, just from the, the, the beginning with Sir Alexander Bustamante and what he stood for, um, equal rights and justice. And um, just knowing those things is a reason. But I, just like in the US, you have moderate Democrats, you have conservative in the conservative party, you have conservative, you have moderate, and you have, um, you know, persons not necessarily strict with any one thing. I think that is where we are moving in this country. You can't look at a party to say, oh, this party is a conservative party, so you can't have a different view. Um, I have a different view, but I love the Jamaica Labour Party. Um, and I, I was given the okay to really bring my motion to the parliament as a parliamentarian. Yeah. Um, and we're not in a, we're not in a, um, you know, uh, uh, we're in a democracy. And so I think the prime minister understands that we're in a de democratic society and that we have varying views um, in, in the Jamaica Labour Party. And so it might not be everybody's view, but I know that this was my view and my stance on abortion. I thought we need to terminate, um, we need to abolish this law and, um, you know, have a new law put in place so women could access safe abortions. Women who possibly are raped to be able to access safe abortions if they would like to. We needed to have a comprehensive, um, you know, um, education system. Again, a lot of us, did, nobody taught us about sex education or what you should and shouldn't do. And where does that lie? I'm able to, because I'm armed with information, but the poorer families, do they... Um, instill or do they do they get to impart that knowledge on their 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 children and so I looked at it from a diff, from varying views as to why I should take this to the parliament and um, the motion was brought to the parliament and we went to the joint select committee with 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 it um, and well we had an election but the fact that we were able to bring it to the committee once it's brought to the committee, what I'm knowing is it can go back on the parliament, can be tabled once again um, for us to take a look at it. And I think um, when you look at the opposition, when I look at um, the government side, there is support there. And so I think this is a time as good as any to yeah. really bring this, um, this law 
for all and to terminate that law, <laughs> um, to abolish that archaic law of 1864. Yeah. Did you know slavery was happening then? Yep. Definitely. Slavery was happening at that time. I think people need to understand slavery was not, it was just being abolished. 1864, this law came in, 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 in place in Jamaica. All the other countries that had slavery or enslaved us abolished. And we are yet to do that in Jamaica for our women and young girls who are oppressed. And it's interesting because I think, uh, as you said, the ministry and many parliamentarians, both men and women, have actually said that they have no issue with the legalization of abortion. I think the medical community has been very, uh, there have definitely been reports and papers that have advocated for the importance of access to safe abortions for many of the reasons that you mentioned. And I think there's there is this, uh, it's almost a, a societal issue in the sense that there are many persons, whether for religious reasons or be, being just overly conservative that still have this idea that only a certain type of woman gets an abortion. I mean, I mean, for me in high school, as you mentioned, I never had, uh, you know, I went to St. Andrew High School, which is a public high school. I never had uh, sex education that taught me how to use a condom or how to, the idea of using contraception. And I remember when I did go on contraception when I was a teenager, for the purpose of actually just regulating my menstruation, my period, I was looked, I was frowned upon. You know, my parents were really, worried or concerned about how it would look if people knew I was on birth control because it would it would be assumed that I was sexually that you were sexually active. active and so I it's a it's a really interesting thing I mean actually even as a 36 year old woman I went to the pharmacy the other day and I went because a girlfriend of mine because she's trying with her partner and the dirty looks that I got in the pharmacy to buy a pregnancy test, I was really surprised by because we're in 2021 and there's no reason that a pharmacist, much less someone standing in line beside me, should be judging me about buying a pregnancy test. And so I, I, I want to kind of talk about some of the myths behind who's getting abortions because we know that 22,000 abortions take place, approximately 22,000 abortions take place in Jamaica each year. And the majority of them are by young, poor women who don't have access to the same things that we're talking about, right? Education, access to contraceptives, et cetera. And just in terms of your constituency and women that you've spoken to during this process of campaigning for this, what are some of the stories that have come out? What, who, are the, who are the women that are seeking access to safe abortions? Well, I think, um, again, because of the stigma and discrimination, women are not going to readily come out and tell you that they're accessing on, until something happens to them. Mm. Um, we, know of, we know of young girls who have been raped by their father in my constituency and got pregnant. Um, and so, you know, but when you listen to out there, we know that it's not just poor women accessing abortion. Um, you have every class of, of, of women trying to access but the, the, the ones with the money can access safer abortion. They can call up their own physician and to try to find out where they can or jump on an airplane and go away where right. nobody's going to ask you any question whatsoever. They would just um, do, you know, do it. And so um, we have to look at that. And we also have to educate because I think some of the women are also 
um, using the morning how and they're using it, you know, three times, four times. I think education yeah. is key right now um, to help our women to navigate this, to navigate this space that is so taboo and so taboo in 2021 that I find it ridiculous, utterly ridiculous. And I guess because I'm more of a liberal mother, I was able to, I had to teach my son, basically. I gave him a book. This is how your body is going to change. These are the things that's going to happen to your body and be prepared. If you need to come and speak to me, then come and talk to me. And I think that is what we need to and out for our children, for our young girls and boys, and for our men, the grown men to stop raping our little girls. Yeah. Um, the incest is a big thing in Jamaica. Um, rape is a big thing in Jamaica. And we have our head in the sand pretending as if this is not happening when it is. It's so um, interesting because I think uh, the, I think the stats are like one in three women experience sexual violence in their lifetime in the, yes. and that's the global stat. And I know that we have one of the highest rates of incest in um, in the Caribbean, in the region. And I keep saying that, I said this on the podcast before, but it's so interesting to me because you will speak to women who are very open about the fact that they've been abused or the fact that they've been um, <clears throat> violated in some way. But when you talk to men, they don't know anyone who's ever done anything wrong or ever assaulted a woman. And I'm just like, if one in three women have been abused or sexually violated in their life, who's assaulted them? Where are these men, and why? Why are they not being held accountable? And we know that the conviction rates in courts are extremely low because it is very difficult to prove rape, particularly in in Jamaica, where it's an under-resourced, where women are afraid to go to police, the police stations because they- Or they think nothing is going to happen. They think yeah. nothing is going to happen. Or if they go to the police, then they're not paid any attention because we hear of cases. Um, and so, and I think it's an indictment on us as how we value our women. Yes. We do not, I don't think, value our women and our girls. And I think that is the reason why you have such a backlash. That is the reason why, just think about it. The, the um, Rex versus Bourne yes. in 1939 in England is because a 13-year-old was raped by five army men. And when they were, she was impregnated. And this case went to the court and the mother seek to have an, um, uh, an abortion for her, her, her daughter. You know, they, they went... The... the, the the jury or the court um, said, look, she should be able to um, have this. And um, that is the only reason I think in Jamaica persons think that it is legal. I think, and okay. I think we need to dispel that myth. It is out of a common law why persons or women whose life may be in danger that a woman can access safe abortion from her doctor in Jamaica. However, it is under statute law, the statute law, which is the law, there is no such law. It is still not something that you should be able to do without criminal charges. And I think this that's a dicey area where physicians are kind of worried and people don't really talk about it. And people say, oh, but if your life is in danger, you can access abortion. It's not the statute law. It's not the law that is in place. Um, that is when in 1975, um, Dr. McNeil, who was a minister of health at that time, yes. went ahead and was trying to change it, the policy 
with the Ministry of Health to make sure that even girls, other women could access, because he understood that rape, incest, all of those things were a part of the culture here, mm -hmm. and it was happening too often. And so, but it never, nothing happened. And again, it came back, back up again in 1989, nothing really happened. Mm -hmm. A policy review group went out, did a study. I heard they were chastised, the parliamentarians were chastised. Um, I spoke with the late Shahini Robinson and she said, boy, it was something else when they went out to actually just to do town hall, just to find out about persons, find out from persons what they thought about um, changing the law, abolishing the law that we have. And people didn't take like, you know, kindly to that. And so I think if we educate the population that look, even if, are you telling me that a 12 year old who's, and let me, let us say 12 and 13 year old, their bodies are not yet developed yeah. fully. To so carry the a child and they are susceptible to the health implications for them is even greater that um they die or they the, the child is not developed fully um they have low birth weight babies and so these no burden put the burden on our system or our healthcare system which is already stretched and burdened because we have not paid attention over the years to our healthcare system and infrastructure, to develop the infrastructure, to put in the requisite machines, um, to pay our doctors and nurses well. Again, we don't collect enough taxes to do all of that because of the informal structure of our, of our system here in Jamaica, which we need to change um, so that we can put more in healthcare. We can put more than the 4% of our GDP in healthcare. Um, you know, so that we can take care, but we also need to make sure that women who want to access safe abortion, that it is not just safe, but also legal. One of the, um, so one of the, the things that I did when I first started my PhD, my PhD is around reconciling sexual violence for young women, particularly in Jamaica, but in indigenous uh, kind of communities generally. And I, had a, I did a focus group with a group of women victim survivors. And there was a particular story that has always stuck with me. And it's a young woman, she was a caregiver and she was on her way home. I think she lived in St. Thomas actually. And she was raped and subsequently became pregnant. She decided to have the child regardless um, because she felt like she was at an age where she wanted to have kids anyway. And even though this wasn't necessarily the circumstances under which it would have been ideal, she decided to go ahead. And at seven months pregnant, she was raped again. Wow. By at seven months. At so seven while she's pregnant, pregnant, she's raped. The child subsequently um, got it. She in, contracted HIV, which also meant that the child contracted HIV. And so now she's in a space where she in you know she's not only burdened with her health complications but the health complications of children Baby. children as well. And so one of the things that we've the research actually reflects in this context is that many of the women who attempt to have abortions because they don't have access to these safe abortions or because they don't have access to the right medication, they're having children who are born with a greater incidence of disabilities, who have their own issues, and the consequences of raising children, unwanted children with disabilities and yeah. the burden that is on the state. And I'm just wondering, you know, there's a lot of controversy about well people are you know particularly from the religious community but i think conservatives in general would like to say well people should be having these children anyway and that actually psychologically it's more beneficial when really we know that 
pregnancy is actually a side effect, can be a traumatic side effect of sexual violence. And then also just the ongoing effect of taking care of a child that was unintended. Um, and I just say, I think those people don't have empathy. Mm. Um, you have, you know, you can't, you can't have empathy if you think that way. And um, even for somebody, as I said, even on the religious side, how can you even say that? You're telling me that I'm now punished, raped, and rape is not a nice thing. It's not something that I consented to. It's something that some people hold you down, beat you, mm-hmm. and traumatize you. You're, you're, you're now, find out you're pregnant, and um, you now have to carry the child of your rapist and thinking about that. I think, um, I think you, you, you can't have empathy to tell me that I must do this because nothing is written that I must do that. Right. It is my conscience and this should be up to me to say I must do this or not. Not you who don't have to feed me, clothe me, take care of my mental state. You can't tell me that. You shouldn't have the right to tell me that. I should have the right to choose what it is that I feel is necessary for me and the, and the child or what is necessary for me and my well-being, my mental state. Mm-hmm. Now, I applaud women who um, decide to keep their child um, under strenuous circumstances. However, we must give the choice to women who don't want to do that and know that they can't, they couldn't go through it. We must give them that opportunity. And even for women who in other situations, socioeconomic situation where a birth control fail or, or, or for any reason that they may look at their situation and say, no, this is not the time for me. As long as they do it in a timely manner, as long as it's done for me, to be honest, I say the first eight weeks, that is just me. Right. You know? And I know different um, review groups have mentioned different times. Um, and different again, countries have different legislation. And, and different t- countries have yeah. different um, things. And so I think it is something that we must look at. I think we must move ahead now and really put something in place. I'm trying to get to sit down with the technical people at the ministry to look at policy going forward as to what we can do. And then to get my parliamentarians to understand exactly why um, what they're voting on, because a lot of times, you know, we must air everything out to let them know, not push things down their throat to say, you must do this or that, but to let them understand what it is um, we're doing. What are the implications on the women, on their mental health? Maybe that's why we have so many people that just don't care about their children. Just leave them be because of the situation that they were, that they became pregnant. And so they're now left to be raised by gunmen or people in the community that don't care and keep an eye on them. If it is that it was brought in love and that kind of a feeling, maybe we wouldn't have some of the cases that we have now. We have to look at it in that respect. And I think the truth is, is that the expectation that the state or that taxpayers should pay for unwanted children as ideal as it might sound within the context of Jamaica, I just don't think is possible. I mean, I think we spend about $1.6 billion on state care as it stands now. And many of those children that are in state care are unwanted children, are from un- unwanted births. Um, I know that many, I think it's the mustard seed communities uh, 
that takes care of largely children with disabilities. Children with disability, right. In speaking with the manager of that, uh, of that community or of that home, they've said that many of the dis children with disabilities will never ever leave because nobody wants to adopt them. And so it's not as if these children will magically be transported into a loving family several months later. They're, they're there beyond the age of 18 because they can't find a loving home. And I, I don't know if you could speak to the idea of the state becoming responsible for these unwanted, I think it's about 5,000 unwanted children that are born each year. And I'm so happy you segue into that because I'm, I, again, I saw an article um, with um, the minister, Robert Nesta Morgan, mm -hmm. about um, an initiative about loving arms. I'm yes. loving that, Love actually. That. And we, um, we need to... Actually, I saw two. I visited a hospital over the um, on Friday in Port Antonio. There were two young children there that were left at the hospital. One is eight, five, and they were left there. Wow. And so, but we're told that you know the nurses give them a loving arm. They hold them. They feed them. They take care of them. Um, and so that was good for me to hear. Uh, that they're actually getting and feeling that sort of affection, even though they might not be mentally um, developed. Yeah. Um, but I think we, we, you know, we just don't even understand certain things from time to time about the body and the human mind and body. But, but I think sorry, that is a good. Mrs. Flynn, for those of for those people who don't know about the Loving Arms program, could you just talk a little bit about what that is? Well, I'm not really familiar because it's not in my ministry. But from what I read, I think it's to be able to have the adoption process much easier and that persons who want to can actually come and possibly play mother or play father to a child and hug them, hold them, give them that love that they may not um, get otherwise. And I think that is a great initiative um, that the government is now implementing. I can't wait for that um, yes. program program to be instituted um, and so that is another way and the adoption process the adoption process I think in Jamaica takes too long takes I think it's just too, too much red tape it's ridiculous and so I think that I know Minister Floyd before he left to become the Minister of Agriculture I know that that was something that was being done I want us now to really take that further and to speed that process up so persons who want to adopt have the option to do so um, because you know we just weeks ago you heard would have heard a mother who left the baby at coronation market yes you know um i think if person that was a baby 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 i wanted to go and take that baby yes. <laughs> you know um that was a, a little a little one and to take and care for your own so the quicker the better for a parent to adopt that child before that child is walking and running around would be great i yes. think once you meet all the criteria to find out about the person Jamaica is small you know it's easy to find out about Tom Dick and Harry what kind of person they are by asking the neighbor um and so that's why the adoption process I think should not take as long as it is doing now um with name board I think that will also help the process um to know who is who and right. to get more information right mm -hmm. and so I think there's some good initiatives and I'm very pleased with some of those initiatives the, let me just say the National Family Planning Board in the Ministry of Ministry of Health and Wellness, we are now doing, um, we just launched last week um, um, to, to implement um, contraceptive, to, to talk more about contraceptive um, in, 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 and also there's a program 
through the um, NFPB in the schools for greater sex education. And so it has to be a holistic thing um, when you to, to, to actually be able for access, access yeah. for contraceptive. Um, We're also doing a teen hub in St. Thomas. We're gonna be doing another one um, through the Spotlight European yeah. Union program in Westmoreland, right? And so if we put these teen hubs with counselors and um, giving um, information to our youngsters or young boys and our girls to arm them with information so that whether they want to delay sex, if they want to delay sex, then that's fine. If they want to start having sex, then the contraceptive is there and with a counselor to help you to understand what you need to do and to teach you what, um, you know, what you should do. So I think we are moving in the right right direction and with this abolition of you know must abolish this this archaic yeah. law with um you know and, and allow women to, to give them that opportunity and that right to to make a choice in their reproductive health and i think it's a great move because it sits as part of this larger i think there's no one solution right so one of the things that we need to do is definitely to legalize abortion but it has to go in tandem with the very things that you're talking about the programs, the social programs, access to information, making sure that people who then will be able to go to abortions can actually afford them. Um, and we talk about, we've talked a little bit in Jamaica, you know, the, the, there's a discussion going around about public funding for abortion so that women who are poorer and are younger and don't have access to um, access it yeah, don't have the money to access it, are able to. And I think it's really speaks to the level of desperation that you must feel when you know that you have a child who you must have an attachment to, but you physically and financially can't take care of them. To have yeah. to leave a child on the doorstep or to give them up for state care, I think it's a very difficult uh, difficult decision to make. And I think that kind of information is really important for both men and women to have to get a better understanding of of what's actually of what goes what the process is to go through an abortion or what it looks like. You know, I think I was in the hairdresser the other day and we were talking about this whole issue of abortion because I wanted to hear what many of the women were feeling. And many of them didn't actually identify taking a pill as an abortion. They only thought of the actual procedure of when you go into a doctor as as a as an abortion and so many women are having abortions and not even realizing that that's what they're doing they just think they're taking a bill to a pill to quote unquote wash out the baby as it were yeah 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 and yeah. so there's a real information is key mm -hmm. information is key and i think that is lacking um and we we have to also penalize these men who are raping our children it's a holistic thing i think yeah. we're not charging them um enough and they're getting away, they're getting away basically with murder. They're getting away by, um, you know, impregnating our little girls who are underage who can't consent to sex. Yeah. And so I think we must look at everything in, in, in its whole. Yes. Um, to, to, to make some changes to our laws, have um, to, to not just apprehend them, but to have stif stiffer penalties for these men. Definitely, definitely. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that I've found once in terms of running dope black women, but also operating in this space of advocacy in Jamaica is that many of our diaspora 
community members don't actually know that abortion, many of my girlfriends in the UK and in the US were shocked to hear that abortion is still illegal in Jamaica. And many of them are interested in knowing how they can contribute or what they can do in order to support this, this movement that you've, you've kind of spearheaded for several years now. And is there anything that the diaspora community can do in terms of sharing information? Speak up, um, put a hashtag and just come together. I think that is what caused Ireland to change their laws, uh, which is a very Catholic society. Yes. I think the same thing happened in Argentina which is also a very Catholic society. And I think they understood um, what was at stake, what was happening to the women and girls in that country and poverty and just, just different things. Um, um, why they felt the need growing up with mom, their parents are Catholic if they're not, you know, but um, they, they grew up with a very strong background in the Catholic um, religion. And so I think, um, you know, it is time for us you know, to, to really take a look at humanity itself, just to take a look at the whole thing itself. Um, our girls who are suffering out there, the women who are struggling out there and to say, what can we do um, to assist? So I think if the diaspora, I, I say speak up and speak out and join me in this, in this campaign um, so that it can finally happen, so that we can repeal this law once and for all to not put in prison women. And people are saying, you know, oh, nobody's been arrested. That is not true. Somebody I know of a doctor and a mother that was arrested up about five years ago. And so I think, and we don't hear about it, just like you don't hear about the women who are dying, yeah. who die from complications from a botched abortion. Yeah. And so um, it is it is real, it is happening, it is always going to happen. And if it is that we want to just sit by and say, well, it's already happening, who cares? Let's not say anything. I don't think that's the way to go. No, definitely not. I, just to pick up on what you said, I think it's approximately 85% of maternal deaths um, take place as a result of unsafe abortions. Um, versus 15%, I think, is as, as a result of complications due to miscarriages and so, so on and so forth. So 85% of the maternal deaths in Jamaica are taking place as a result of women not being able to access safe abortions in medical facilities by trained medical professionals. Um, just to kind of wrap up, I think one of the main um, recommendations that came out of the report at Capri was that we should do a secret conscience vote. And that's really rooted in the idea that, um, you know, parliamentarians should be able to vote in accordance with their conscience because largely because the constituent, their constituencies are so uh, split on the idea of abortion. You know, we don't, we haven't had a, a comprehensive public Camp awareness campaign so that people can have an informed opinion and many are going off of their you know the anecdotes that they've heard or as you said their religious background and so on and so I think while I, I think there are many parliamentarians who might be able to speak up um, I think it is difficult within the system that we have and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the difficulties of kind of spearheading this movement and, and speaking up kind of in silo on your own about such a controversial issue? Well, again, as I said, I grew up with, as a tomboy, mm -hmm. I grew up very strong. I grew up knowing who I was. I grew up understanding 
who I am and um, always wanted to speak my truth as long as I said I wasn't being rude. Um, and I think this is just how I feel. This is my stance and I'm not afraid as a parliamentarian to make my stand. Some people are for the death penalty. Some people are for imprisoning people for life mm -hmm. or whatever it is, for whatever it is that they do. Um, there, there are strict penalties there. You're a lawmaker. You should be able to make that decision. However, if it is that you want to do it in confidence or not to let everybody know, I think they should also be given that right to do so. In America, just the other day, the people vote all the time and not in the secret ballot. People vote all the time and you don't know, you know, how they voted. Yeah. And so I don't see the, the big deal why people are creating a big fuss about it, really, that, oh, I want to see, it's just this bullyism, I think, that we're doing um, that, oh, I need to know where you stand or how you voted. And um, no, I don't think you should or must know because right across the world, there are secret votes all the time in right. our, in our in, 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 in governments, in Congress, um, in, in, in big, big, um, big countries that there are secret votes. And so why can't we have a secret vote if persons choose to do so? Um, and so if that is going to make the law change and I say, go right ahead, secret vote. Um, and whoever wants to vote openly, they'll know how I voted. Um, yeah. But I don't, I don't have a problem with this. And when we say secret, you know, I just, just as I said, um, it is done right across, I think all over the world uh, where persons can have the right to, uh, I don't know about all the other jurisdiction, but I know in the US that they do Persons can vote in in in, in confidence. Um, Definitely, it's happening. I, I it, well. it right. So I and we are with England. We're aligned with England. So I don't see that. And I think so. So like even that, I think those things can come out. Again, your constituents. Some of my constituents will look at me and say, "Why is she following up this abortion?" Not understanding, I'm saying, "Well, the reason is because one of my own constituents died. There are people who are raped every day." and getting pregnant. I want to protect them that if it is that they want to choose to not, um, you know, if they want to choose to terminate a pregnancy then they should have that option to do so as quickly as possible. Yeah. And so I'm all for, you know, if you choose to, to, to carry the child then that's great. But I, me personally could never carry a rapist child. Yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't. I can't imagine, I can't imagine. Right, I can't imagine and so Give the person that option. Why should I force it down your throat that you should do this, even though you're raped or even if you're in a certain circumstance that you should do this? I don't think it's right. I think we need to repeal it. And if it's going to take um, a secret vote or whatever you want to call it, then um, I think we should allow persons to actually vote in private um, if they choose to do so, so we can repeal this law. Boy, Mrs. Flynn, if nobody thought you were a dope black woman before, they definitely know you are one now. Between your accolades in sports to spearheading this very controversial topic, I mean, I personally, as a woman, can only thank you for, for making this discussion possible because it is important to so many women. I know so many women who have had to go through back doors to get this done and at great cost, whether within the context of their family or to their personal health or to their emotional and psychological states, because it's not an easy procedure to go through. And it's something that women don't take lightly, you know, and I think nope. 
men and women who don't agree with the idea of legalization of abortion need to understand that. And so I really just want to thank you for coming on to talk about this today and for all of your efforts. And uh, as I've discussed at the top of our episode, there are so many women that are becoming involved in politics today. I think we have more women in politics than we ever have had in Jamaica. Um, within this current administration. And if you have any words of advice for them or any bits of wisdom, encouragement about how they can survive this unforgiving space as we've put it. Again, just like Mavis Gilmore told me, never ex expect a thank you. Do it for the reason you went in it for, the love of your country and the love of the people, your people, your Jamaican people. That is really... Once you remain steadfast in that thinking and no matter what comes up, this is why I'm doing this. I'm doing it for the love of my country. I'm doing it for the love of my people. Then you can't go wrong. You will stay steadfast in, in, in your fight um, for your constituents and for why you went into politics in the first place. And that is, that is my mantra every day. Mm -hmm. Okay, something comes up. This, this is why I'm doing this, the love for my country. I want to see my country progress. That's definitely useful for me to take heed of as well, because even in the context of advocacy, sometimes you get tired and sometimes you get frustrated because you just you want people to get it because it feels so intuitive and so right to you. Um, mm -hmm. And as you said, it's really about maintaining and persevering and just knowing why you're doing what you're doing. And and there are so many proud Jamaicans that we have, and I'm sure they're grateful without maybe necessarily knowing that they should say thank you, but they are grateful for the work that you're doing. So thank you. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for speaking so openly and authentically as all dope Black women do. I just thank you and thank Capri for the study because I think we need more information like this. And I think that sparked some you know, talk out there. And so I think the information was very useful persons who are not okay with what was happening and thank you for your contribution um and thanks for having me on this okay. podcast so thanks so much for coming on the podcast don't forget to listen and subscribe to wherever you get your podcast from on facebook and twitter we are dope black woman on instagram we are dope black woman one until next week we'll be back but until then stay blessed and unapologetically black catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 